The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all of you who are here in the room, and those of you tuning in online, we welcome you. And I want to say thank you so much for joining us this morning. Visitors, I hope you feel welcome. I hope uh, we get a chance to connect with you potentially today, or if you'd like us to stay connected, there are visitor cards in the lobby that you can fill out, or there's also a QR code that you can scan in your Sunday sheet. But we're really glad that you're here at the Springs. This is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so anyone can find the way to God. And we experience that transformation primarily in three rhythms that we think about it, gathering in the name of the Father, growing into the image of his Son, and going by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm glad you're with us this morning. And I did want to give a very quick shout out to Carol and Harold Payden, 62nd anniversary this morning. Let's give it up. Congratulations, y'all. That's amazing. And I wanted to invite you all also next week, once again, to the Back to School Carnival. That's Sunday, August 27th. It's next week at 5 p.m. right out here in the parking lot. It's going to be a great time. Cakewalk, dunk tank, games, treats, all kinds of fun stuff. So everybody's welcome. Invite your neighbors, invite your friends. Actually, we have a few leftover cards uh, from the mailer that are on the communion table, so you can come up and pick those up afterwards if you want to hand them out to your neighbors or something. But I hope you'll be there next Sunday, August 27th. And then I hope you'll be here again the next Sunday, September 3rd, for a brand new sermon series we're starting in Philippians, one spirit, one mind, one love. So Ben and I are going to be preaching through the letter to the church at Philippi for eight weeks, and I'm really, really excited. If you haven't read through that letter in a while, go back and read it. It's probably Paul's most joyful letter, but I think there's going to be a lot for us to glean from that study. So I hope you'll be here Sunday, September 3rd as well as we begin that. But this morning we're in week three of the word of the Lord. So I'm gonna read from Genesis 45, one through 15, and then let's give thanks to God for his gift of his word this morning. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept while Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word. God, let this word stir your gospel up within us that we might walk out of these doors this morning prepared to live into your redemption, prepared to see through the eyes of faith and prepared to know that Jesus Christ has died and has risen and that changes everything. Lord, bless me with the gift of preaching and let your Holy Spirit illuminate this gospel text. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. In college, I became friends with a sassy old southern woman named Betty Clark. Miss Betty, uh, as we knew her, she worked at the OC cafeteria at the dessert bar. And Miss Betty was 69 years old. She was hilarious. She was wonderful. And she needed rides to and from work. So some like myself and Brian Stengland, uh, we had a chance amongst a cohort to take a shift one day a week where we would either pick her up and drive her to OC in the morning or we would take her back home in the afternoon. And I loved driving with Miss Betty, driving Miss Betty as we called it. Uh, she was hilarious and we had all kinds of fun together, but you could also incur her wrath pretty quickly. There was one time where I was trying to help her into my little Chevy Malibu and I was trying to buckle her in and the seatbelt grazed her head and she accused me of trying to slap her upside the head because of that. Uh, but there was one time where I really did wrong her and inflict some suffering on her because I failed to pick her up. I, I slept through my alarm or I missed the phone call that she would usually give us and I didn't get to her in time. Somebody else had to bring her and I didn't see her until later that morning in the calf. And she was livid. She could barely look at me. She would barely speak to me. I was definitely not getting any dessert that morning at the dessert bar. But I distinctly remember her, besides threatening to hit me over the head with a frying skillet, she said, I know God says to forgive, but I ain't gonna. It was too late. The damage was done. There was nothing I could do. 
Have you all ever been there? Have you ever wronged someone in a way in which the damage was done and it was over? It was too late. There was no way to to fix the suffering that you had caused. Or maybe someone has wronged you and it's just too late. The damage has been done. Things are different now. You've made me suffer. Joseph's life has been completely, horrendously upended by his brothers. He has been deeply, deeply wronged by them. And so the question that I think the Joseph story asks of us this morning, the question I want rattling in the back of our heads as we look at this text is what can be done about the suffering that we inflict on each other? What can be done with the suffering that we inflict on one another? I know it's a question that raises big emotions, right? Because it touches on ways that we've suffered, ways that we've harmed others, and that's precisely where Joseph is at the beginning of our passage. He can't control himself anymore, it says in verse one. And then in verse two, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. So, since we're parachuting into the most climactic moment of the story, if you haven't heard or read the Joseph story in a while, let me just give a quick recap. He's one of 12 brothers. His father Jacob likes him the best. That means that they all hate him. One day, they decide they want to kill him, but instead, they sell him into slavery into Egypt, and they tell Jacob, his father, that Joseph is dead. So Joseph's life unfurls, and there's all these tragedies and sufferings, but also God is with him, and good things happen as well, and eventually, Joseph is able to rise to the top of Egypt because he interprets the Pharaoh's dreams that a famine is coming. So he prepares all of Egypt so that they have food. And then Joseph's brothers come to get food because that's the only place you can get it. And they don't recognize Joseph. They see him, but they don't know it's him. And it all comes to a head where he breaks down in our text this morning. So moving to verse four, Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They sold him into slavery. The Bible has no shortage of family drama. If you have experienced drama in your family or are walking through drama in your family, the Bible's no stranger to it. The Bible's not afraid of the turmoil and strife and suffering that we inflict on one another. It's pretty much all there. And let's be honest here this morning. Joseph has his brothers dead to rights. They have completely, horrifically wronged him. And in fact, some moral philosophers would say that Joseph has actually acquired in their wronging him what you might call rights of retribution, right? They wronged him, and now Joseph has new rights he didn't have before. He has the right to be angry. 
He has the right, perhaps, to see that harsh punishment is imposed upon them. The Old Testament calls it eye for an eye. So when we ask our question, what can be done about the suffering that we inflict on each other, one of the answers we can give is retribution. We can have this spiral of reprisals. We can inflict harm on each other, and then we can let the circle keep going viciously downwards. But that's not what Joseph chooses. Joseph in verse four says, I'm your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. Joseph is forgiving them. Joseph Walter Brueggemann says this is a gospel announcement, right? The, the dead one is alive. The, the lost brother has been found and he's announcing forgiveness. He's announcing good news, glad tidings to the brothers that egregiously harmed him. Why? Why does he do it? Well, there's that little word for That little word for that some have said it starts a motivational clause, right? That's where Joseph says for because this is why. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For because God sent me before you to preserve life. Somehow, despite all the suffering Joseph has been through, Somehow, mysteriously, God has been at work. Somehow, while humans were maliciously working evil, somehow God was benevolently working salvation. And that grounds Joseph's ability to forgive. Joseph has been given some kind of miraculous divine angle to see a way in which God has been at work in redemption. Now before we talk any further about God's work, even in the midst of suffering, I think we should put a disclaimer out that the same Bible that gives us the story of Joseph is the very Bible that also gives us the story of Job. So Joseph gets a divine angle on why some of this has happened. Joseph is able to make some sense of meaning and purpose through the sufferings that befell him. Job never really gets that. If you read the story of Job, he never really gets a reason. He never really gets any kind of sense of meaning of what happened to him. He's never really given that divine angle on why or what was happening. But Joseph does. And my hunch is, is that all of us in our lives at times will suffer like Joseph and at times will suffer like Job. I think most all of us will suffer in ways that we really, this side of eternity, cannot make any sense of. 
But I think if we're open to it, we may at times also suffer like Joseph. We may also suffer in ways of which we are somehow able to see God at work redemptively. We may suffer in ways where not only are we able to make some kind of sense of it, but it can also serve as the ground for us to participate in God's redemptive activity. I think of Frederick Douglass, the famous orator, the most famous black man in American history of the 19th century, really, and who who was an enslaved man who escaped, right? He got out, and then he spoke out as an abolitionist. He was a powerful voice against that, and he was actually invited to give the 4th of July address in 1852 in Rochester, New York. And Douglas famously believed in the providence of God. In his autobiography, he talks even about, you know, moving from one plantation to the other. He says, I I could sense somehow that God was at work in that. He says, you might think I'm egotistical or superstitious, but I really did have a divine sense that I would not be left to slavery's foul embrace forever. And so he gives this speech in 1852, less than a decade before the Civil War breaks out, and Douglas invokes divine providence at the end of the speech. He says, there are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. He quotes Isaiah, the arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope. For Frederick Douglass, a divine angle on his sufferings was not just a way to make meaning, it was also a platform from which he could work for the liberation of others, a platform from which he could speak out against slavery, from which he could announce the good news of the captives being freed. That mysterious divine angle of God at work, even in the worst, he's able to see some kind of meaning and see a way to act in God's ways. This is the angle that Joseph gets. Joseph gets to see that even though his brothers egregiously harmed and wronged him, somehow God was also doing something for the good, right? It's, it's amazing to watch the way that Joseph progresses and how he narrates his story. He kind of starts out as, you sold me into slavery, in verse four. And then in verse five, he says, you sold me, but God sent me. And then by verse eight, he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He starts to see God's redemptive power so powerfully that it almost overwrites what his brothers had done. Right, so it actually reminded me of, if you've seen the the iPhone Recently, Apple announced not too long ago that you can edit texts now, right? You've seen this. You've probably used it. But verse 4, it's almost as if he says, you sold me to destroy life. 
And then he edits himself. He says, you know, you sold me to destroy life, but God sent me to preserve life. And then by verse eight, even though his brother's evil actions are buried in a lair underneath, the definitive word for Joseph is that God has done this to work salvation. You did evil, God did good to preserve life. Joseph is given a divine angle to see that where God works, God's transcendent action is so much higher, so much power, more powerful, can't even be compared that God's redemptive activity will always eventually overwrite and outlast human evil. That's the story of the universe. That's the end toward which we're going and we believe in. That God's activity is so much higher, more transcendent and powerful and real that it will always overwrite eventually and outlast human evil. Right, and he says in chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph puts it like this. He says, as for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose so he could preserve the lives of many people as you can see this day. I was floored by a, a Francis Spuford novel a couple of years ago called Light Perpetual. It's a wonderful book that tells the story of five kids in London in the middle of the 20th century, and it tells their life stories over decades at 15-year intervals. So you're kind of checking in with these five different characters. And my favorite character in the book is Ben. And Ben starts out as a kid, and then he gets older, and he struggles with severe mental health issues. He, he really struggles a lot, and he's medicated, and he self-medicates with drugs, and he's on the streets of Bexford, and he rides the bus around and around and around, and he's mistreated and bullied, and all kinds of awful things happen to him. But then later, towards the end of his life, some good things also happen a sweet season. And in some of the final pages of the book, Ben is in hospice, and he's looking back on his life, the good and the bad, and he has this thought, this thought that if the different bits and pieces of his life, rising lofted as if by a bubble of force from below, are arranged in a messy spiral of hours and years, then mightn't it be the case Mightn't there be a place, mightn't there be an angle from which you could see the whole accidental mass composing just from that angle into some momentary order you could never have noticed at the time? Mightn't there be a line of sight, not ours, from which the seeming cloud of debris of our day is no more in order than, say, the shredded particles riding the wave front of an explosion prove to align into a clock face of transparencies. This whole mess arose a window. Joseph's life from one angle is a tragic spiraled mess. 
The life of God's people, Israel, from one angle is a tragic spiraled mess. Maybe your life, maybe my life, from one angle is this tragic spiraled mess or the life of the church. But perhaps there is an angle from which some kind of order can be seen. Some kind of order of the redemptive work of God that even though there was all this destruction happening, God was preserving and giving life. This is the angle that Joseph sees. And it's the angle that the early church sees as well. When they look on perhaps the messiest spiral of destruction, the destruction of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross, when Peter talks about it in Acts 3, he says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Notice that tension once again of human and divine agency that you dealt death, but God brought life. You sold me to destroy a life. I was as good as dead, but God sent to preserve life. Isn't that the way God works While humans are maliciously working destruction, God is graciously working salvation. As far as the suffering that I inflicted on Miss Betty, I'm happy to report she did eventually forgive me. And our friendship continued on beyond OC and her health was deteriorating and a group of us, including Brian Stangland and I and several others, went to visit her when she was in hospice in OU Edmond. And we sat there for about an hour looking back and forth between her and whatever was on the TV. But she was pretty silent still. There wasn't much going on. Until we sang her favorite song. We decided to bust out and sing Miss Betty's favorite song. And for a moment a wind from God blew into that woman and her arms were alive and her eyes lit up and her face was reanimated once more for a brief moment. She experienced a lot of suffering. She'd been through a whole lot. But her favorite song was Amazing Grace. Somehow, through the amazing grace of God, Miss Betty had seen him at work in her life. So the question that we've been asking, what can be done about the suffering that we inflict on each other, maybe one of the answers is nothing. Maybe we can't do anything. Maybe what's done is done and it's in the past. Or maybe, maybe the Joseph story gives us a better answer. Maybe the Joseph story tells us that in terms of our suffering, what's done is not done. It is being undone by the unstoppable grace of God. What's done is not done. It's not finished. And from God's transcendent, far more powerful, far more real perspective, it's not over. 
God continues to work transformation. God continues to bring life out of death, to bring light from darkness. I know some of us have suffered like Job. I know that there are things you've been through, we've been through, that we can't possibly make heads or tails of it this side of eternity. But if we suffer like Joseph, perhaps we can somehow see the divine angle of the way that God is at work, and then we can live into that. Then we can announce the good news to the captives. Then we can announce forgiveness and glad tidings because the one who was dead on Good Friday rose on Easter Sunday. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and that means there is a divine angle that we are moving towards from which we may be able to see finally, fully, the redemptive work of the God of Jesus Christ, the God who was with Joseph and sent him to preserve life. Let us take refuge this morning, church, in the God who gives us a ground for his redemptive work in our lives, the God who gives us the eyes of faith to see him at work, working good. Let us stand and praise the God who raised Jesus from the dead.